0: When you read John's gospel, and when you read the letters that are written by John, you'll notice that he's a he's a kind of a relationship guy. Does anybody sort of pick that up? You know, he's into, he's a bit of a nick, right? He's into relationships, you know, easygoing, leaning on Jesus' shoulder, you know, whilst they're having a bit to eat, you know. Um, but he really, really understood that, you know, what it means to love and how Jesus was, was love embodied. And love comes out very, very strongly as a theme. I'm sure you agree uh, in what he wrote. And it was John who probably wrote one of the most iconic, if I can call it that, most well-known, and also yet the most, one of the most profound scriptures that most of us will know. It's John 3.16, Right? For God so loved the world that he gave. We could stop there. Thank you. Goodbye. Right. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? Did he give a couple of bucks? Throw a few coins into the, the, the tin as he goes past? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He gave everything. He gave the epitome of what he loved. Who has children here? Okay, do you know what it would feel like to actually give your child as a sacrifice, as a, as a sacrifice to die on behalf of people that you see sitting around this room? I don't know if we do. We may get some emotion. We may kind of feel a little bit of what it may feel like, but really, we don't know what it's like, and yet God so loved us that he gave, and he gave of a son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Evidence of God's unfathomable, and I'm going to say that a few times this morning, deep, impenetrable love was that he gave himself, he gave what mattered most, he gave that was most dear, he gave absolutely everything for us, to save us and to make us children of God, And so as elders in the church, and sorry, I'm, my name's Patrick, if you, you're new here, I'm one of the elders here, uh, and as John was an elder, we wanted to do a teaching on giving and on generosity, and we thought that today would be a good day to do that, wi- right whilst we're in the midst of looking at 1 John and all the wonderful things that, that 1 John talks about, and, and this very, very much fits within that, I'm sure you'll see. And hopefully what else you'll see is that um, being generous with our time, with our money, with our possessions is something that is really a very, very big topic and cannot be covered in just this one talk. And why is that? Because it goes to the very essence of who God is. Giving goes to the very essence of who God is. And that's why I've got the title that I have, that giving is really all about the heart of God. Hopefully what you will see and what you will hear and what you will feel this morning is that it's not about money, okay? The primary focus of giving is not about money, it's about heart, it's about love. Love is the reason we give. Money is just one of the ways that we're able to do so. Giving is more than money, it's more than possessions. It's of ourselves, it's our time, it's of our very being, of our very essence. And Jesus, God gave his son Jesus uh, for us, And, and as we'll see later, that we need to be giving ourselves back to God. As I've been contemplating this talk, my inclination, if you know me, is I always want to jump to solution mode very quickly. Ask Philip when we're in meetings. He wants to go through all this. i say, what's the solution? (laughs) Okay. Um, And and so my inclination is to jump immediately to solution, to application. Okay, what do we do about it? But I just felt very, very strongly as I was preparing uh, this talk um, that I needed to first start with the theology of giving. What I call the who and the why. We need to understand the who and the why before we do anything else. Therefore, in the first part, I'm going to start with the theology of giving, and then the second part, then, we're going to talk about how we can apply this to our lives. I strongly believe that if we get the theology right, if we get our heart right, then the application's just going to flow from there. If you try and do it the other way around, you're going to struggle. It's going to be dead works, and it's going to end up, yeah, in, in, in failure, in frustration and so the Bible gives us a great illustration of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 um, the chapter on love in verse 3 we read if I give away all I have and if I and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love I gain nothing so hear me folks please as I said earlier this is not about money this is about our heart This is about where is our heart, what's motivating us as Christians in our life. It's not about works, it's about God's heart. Understanding God's heart on giving and the rest will flow naturally. The who and why of giving is God. Sorry, the who of giving is God. The why of giving is love. Let me say that again. The who of giving is God. The why of giving is love. Let's look together together. Now at the theology of giving. So hopefully it should pop up. There it is. Three points. Uh, You'll be disappointed that I've actually got six points because it's two sets of three. But I thought two sets of three is probably okay. Um, If you don't know the joke, don't worry. The theology of giving. Three things. Firstly, we need to understand that everything belongs to God. Secondly that God gave everything for you. And thirdly, the place we start is by giving our lives back to God. Got that? Everything belongs to God. God gave everything for you. And we start by giving our lives back to God. I've said this many times, I, I haven't preached that much, but the few times I have, I've probably mentioned this scripture every single time. I'm going to do it again. I'm a guy of beginnings. I like to start at the very, very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you're a Christian, and if you believe that this scripture, that God created the heavens and the earth, then you will, by by inference, you will know that everything belongs to God, right? God created everything. Psalm 24, verses one to two says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. And you see that little footnote, is it up there? No, it's not. But the the footnote says, uh, where it says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, it says, and all that fills it. So the earth is the Lord's and all that fills it. Everything in this world belongs to God. There is nothing that is not his. If you believe in God and if you believe in who he is, that he is in fact God, I don't know how you come to any other conclusion except that conclusion, that everything, absolutely everything belongs to him, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, it's a fact. God is God, and everything belongs to God. Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, and we're going to go through a lot of scriptures because it's just, you. you like I said earlier, this Talking about giving, you you could talk for a year and not exhaust what you find in the Bible on this subject. But Psalm 50 verses 10 to 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I know all the birds of the hills and and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness is mine. I think God is making a point here. Right, that everything belongs to God, everything. You, me, what we have. My question to you: Remember, we're starting with the theology of God. My question to you this morning is: Do you believe that? There's a few half nods, a slight grin at the back. Do you believe that? Do you believe that everything? belongs to God. Because you're not, you have to believe first before you're able to do. Okay, you need to have faith first before you're able to act. So this applies to every single one of us. The recognition that we belong to God and it follows that all that we are and all that we have belongs to God. It's as simple as that. And that's just the first point. Point number two, God Gave everything to you, or for you. So, get this in your head. Everything is God's. Everything belongs to God. Then God, in his amazingness, says, you know what? I'm going to give everything for you, and you, and you, and you. I'm going to give everything, because it's in his heart to do so. So, going back... Back to God's blueprint in in Genesis chapter one, my favorite book of the Bible, my favorite chapter of the Bible. We see that God wanted mankind to be fruitful and to multiply and God gave us this wonderful planet with its plants, animals and birds to meet our needs. Somebody mentioned earlier the lovely sunshine and the feeling of spring in the air and everything else. Uh, Yesterday I was out in the garden. I was gonna say just in my T-shirt, but uh, I was wearing jeans and T-shirt. I should have wore shorts, actually. Um, but uh, it, was, it was so lovely. And, you know, I, I don't know how... Let me, let, me not, no, let me not jump there. But when you look at creation, right, and you see the wonder of creation, God created that for us. Genesis 1, 26 to 29. Then God said, let us... and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. God is an amazing creator God. He created this earth for us. He gave it all for us. He said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion. Receive and live from the fruit uh, of the earth. And you know, God provides for everyone, not only for Christians, okay? He provides for everyone because ultimately we're all his children and it's just some people have removed themselves from God. But God sends his rain, it says in the Bible, on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, God is there as a provider for everyone, we know the story of mankind to go through from Genesis through to Revelation very quickly. Um, how the first Adam sinned and through sin, death came to all men and each one of us. We were all in Adam. We were all in that man. We all were born into sin in that sense. And in order to redeem us, God had to give himself, his very being through his son, Jesus Christ, the new Adam, John 3, 16, I've already mentioned it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I said it before, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his son. He gave his very being to each one of us. Consider Jesus about whom it states in Philippians that he gave of his own life in Philippians 2 from verses five to eight. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not commit equality, sorry, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had everything. Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8. Read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's talking about stuff. He's talking about giving He's talking about giving of money, giving of possessions, giving of time. And he uses that word richness in that context. I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel here. Please listen to me. But we've got to take the Bible for what it is. Just because people have distorted it slightly, we've got to see the truth there, okay? And the truth was God Jesus, as the son of God, was fabulously wealthy. He had everything. He had everything. He was God. He is God. And yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And he gave it all up and he became in the form of a man and he became a servant, or a better way of saying it, a slave. He became as a slave and he died on the cross for each one of us. Why? He gave up those riches, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 18. For us. Why? So that we may have them, that we may inherit them. John says in 1 John that, you know, how wonderful it is that we should be called children of God. And that is exactly who we are. When I die, I'm going to make sure that my children have something from what I, I have, they have my inheritance. And so we, as children of God, we have that inheritance. Can you get your mind around that? The mind-blowing knowledge that we are children of God and Jesus, where is it? Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When I was thinking about this and reading up on this, I came across this saying by a pastor in the US. I don't think he's particularly famous. His name is Stephen J. Cole. If you're American, you've always got to have the initial in the middle. (laughs) So I'm I'm Patrick M. Corbett. Um, But I I actually really, these words actually really resonated with me. Because as I was preparing for it, I was kind of like going whoop whoop, you know, getting excited about what a wonderful, wonderful inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. And he says this, it is my normal weekly experience to feel overwhelmed by inadequacy as I attempt to preach God's word. But when I come to a subject as fast and as the unfathomable riches of Christ, I am almost paralyzed. It makes me realize how little of these immeasurable riches of Christ that I experience personally it overwhelms me to think about what I can say on so profound a subject. So I'm unusually aware that unless God anoints his word with power, my feeble words will surely fall. What is our reaction to the unfathomable riches of God's grace? Do we realize how little of these immeasurable riches of Christ that I experience personally? Point number three, so God owns everything, God's given us everything, and we have to start by giving ourselves back to God. Not our money, not anything else, just us. If you want to read, and I've mentioned it already, a treatise on giving, then you can't go far wrong than reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 if you want to learn about giving uh, in the church. And what is interesting, when Paul launches into this very practical, and it is very practical guidance on giving in the church, he uses the churches of Macedonia as an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, from verses 1 to 5, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. to the Lord, and then by the will of God, to us. The Macedonian church got their theology spot on. Why? They gave themselves to God first before they did anything else. And that has to be our response. Our response to this amazing, overwhelming God that created everything, the heavens and earth, everything you see, everything that you don't see, who gave everything for us so that we would inherit everything, which is mind-blowing, but we will. I was going to get on to eschatology, but I shan't, because I don't have time. But he gave everything, and so we need to be like the Macedonian church and say, I'm going to give my life to God in recognition of what he has done for us. He's interested in our heart, folks. He's not interested in our money. Let me say that again. He's interested in our heart. He's not interested in our money. The Pharisees got that kind of warped a little bit because they wanted to be seen giving. You know, giving. They 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 were wealthy. They were of the elite class in that time. They were the wealthy. They gave a lot. You know, you'll never outgive Bill Gates. You'll never outgive him. Don't even try. Because he's got billions to give away. Warren Buffett, the same thing. If you know about Warren Buffett. And apologies if you don't. But he's got billions to give away. And I don't know if these guys are Christians or not. You know, it's not only Christians that can give money. God's not interested in the money. He's interested in the heart. The Pharisees gave a lot of money and God said, they've got their reward. Forget about them. You see that poor widow over there? She's given three pennies, but she's given from a heart. She's given all that she has, and she's given... That's what God's interested in. It's not how many zeros you have at the end of the, the number. Okay, I'm from Zimbabwe. A few years back, there were a lot of zeros after the numbers. You know what? A loaf of bread would cost you about $20 billion or 200 billion, or whatever. It's not about the zeros. Do you think God cares about money? He doesn't care a hoot about money. He's after your heart. We care about money. Mm. Do we care about money? We sure do. God doesn't. So as our theology sound, do we have that good foundation to say, okay, now that I understand this, what about the what and the how? okay. What do I do and how do I do it? So, application of giving. Three points again. Philip will be proud. You cannot serve two masters. There is a principle of first fruits in the Bible. And God loves and rewards a cheerful giver, He really does. You don't have to be a Christian, number one. You don't have to be an anthropologist, and I think as people that study people. And you don't have to be a philosopher to recognize the incredible power of wealth. You just have to have an iPhone. And you can see it all on there through social media, through the BBC website, whatever it is. Wealth, money, and possessions have incredible power in this world. It has great capacity to do good and be a blessing, and yet, like all things, can be misused to cause misery and death. People, the the most misquoted uh, verse in the Bible is that that money is the root of all evil. Firstly, that's a misquote. It doesn't say that. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is just this funny thing that we've invented, right, that enables us to trade. That's all it is. I'm in financial services, I kind of deal with a lot of money all the time. You trade in money because it's really hard to trade in goats and milk and you know, watches and that sort of stuff. So we tend to have money that allows us to, to trade. It's, it's a symbol, it's a representation of wealth. Of stuff. Okay? But that's all it is. So money in itself is not evil. Okay, so just get that one very clear in your minds. But it is the love of money that can be evil. And if money masters us, or if your master is money, it'll cause anguish, darkness, and distress. Romans 6, verse 16 says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to money. Sorry, (laughs) which leads to righteousness. Fraudian slip, someone might say. Money and possessions have been... The cause, as I said, of hatred, jealousy, rifts, family feuds, fights, wars, and deaths since the beginning of time. Money can be a great servant. You can use money for good, good things. But it is a terrible, or as I've put here, tyrannical master. How do we break the power of money in our lives? Sorry, looking at the wrong page. Matthew 6, 19 to 21 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is Jesus saying here? This is, this is a, a scripture that we need to look at very carefully and we need to understand the context. But as usual, as Jesus always did, was he was dealing with matters of the heart. The context of these verses is actually the Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest sermon ever preached, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, because Matthew 5 and 6 kind of, whether the, it was preached all at the same time or whether it was just recorded as one long-flowing sermon. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage of scriptures. And it starts with this thing called, or these things called the Beatitudes. Anybody heard of the Beatitudes? And what, what is a Beatitude? It's that internal attitude, such as poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, righteousness, mercy, purity, and Peace. And he, he, he deals with things of the law and he's dealing with the Pharisees at the time uh, as, as well. And he shows that the law dealt very much with external issues, actions and right living. But Jesus taught that the bar was actually higher than what the law set. Okay? That God's righteousness is set far higher than the law. And he goes into things like, you know, uh, do not murder. We, we've, we've read that in the Ten Commandments. But then he says, if in your heart you hate your brother, you're like a murderer. Ouch. You know, I'm not a murderer, but have I hated my brother? Hmm, I'm not too sure about that. He says, do not lust, do not uh, commit adultery. You say, yeah, no, haven't committed adultery. Then he goes on to say, but even if you lust after someone and you look at someone and you lust in your heart for them, it's the same as committing adultery with them. Do you see how Jesus sets the bar? so much higher than just the law. So what is he saying? He's saying the outward things aren't that so important. It's, what in your, it's what's in your heart that actually counts. And we need to understand that. We need to understand the context. And why is he saying that in, in, in relation to giving? Because I mentioned earlier the Pharisees and, and, and the, the rulers of the time and the elite at the time, they gave to the poor they made great fanfare to say, wow, look at us, we're giving to the poor, and we're giving lots of money, lots of noughts at the end of this one, at this check. And Jesus said, I'm just not interested in that. Because they're gonna get their reward, but it's gonna be now. They're not gonna get their reward in heaven because their heart is not set on those right things. And so giving to the poor and and that." He also mentions fasting in that passage, if you read it. They're both good things, but not if they're done for worldly, selfish motives. As I said earlier, I think I read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, it says you can give everything, you can give up everything to the flames, but if you have not love, it means nothing. And so Jesus here, again, was saying just that. That if the motivation is not love, it's meaningless. And so Jesus asks the question in in um, Matthew six, twenty-one, where is your heart? He not only exposed the heart motives of the Pharisees, but his teaching is that we give our time, our energy, and our money to those things that are important to us. Isn't that true? That's what Jesus is saying there. My paraphrase of Matthew chapter six, verse twenty-one is simply this. You invest your time, energy, and money where your heart is or in what you believe in. Bank statements, diaries, and other things are probably good indicators of where your heart lies on these matters. So with this in mind, the command in the previous two verses, uh, verse 19 and 20, actually begins to make sense. The first part of the command is negative. It's saying, don't invest Lay up treasures on earth that are temporary and likely to diminish, be destroyed, or stolen. Instead, the positive part is to invest in the eternal. Lay up treasures in heaven where they will not diminish, be stolen, or destroyed. And the next two verses in Matthew 26 on the first reading seem slightly odd. And I have to say, when I was preparing for this, I thought, shall I just cut this out? (laughs) because yeah. <laughs> I'll just cut these two verses out nobody will notice except maybe Andrew so Andrew will be studying the word as he always does he's got his bible open Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't want to leave the next two verses out Let, let's let's read them Matthew six twenty-two to 23 the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Doesn't that seem slightly odd and out of context when you're reading about Jesus talking about laying up your treasures and then he goes on later talking, picks up the same theme. Now, physiologically, Jesus is spot on. The eye gives light to the body, right? I think everybody would agree with that. If your eye is healthy, you have light. If it is not, you are in darkness. And Jesus is not giving a biology lesson here, okay? He is talking about matters of the heart. I think what he's saying is that your heart gives light to your soul. If your heart attitude is good, you will be walking in the light. If your heart attitude is bad, you will be full of darkness. Even if externally, you are doing or are seen to be doing the right thing. Let me read that again. Your heart gives light to the soul. If your heart attitude is good, you will be walking in the light. If your heart is bad, you will be full of darkness, even if externally you are doing or are seen to be doing the right thing. If, like the Pharisees, you believe you are in the light by giving to the poor, fasting, or whatever else, How great, in fact, is that darkness if your heart is not right? That's the challenge of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't hold back the punches, right? He really said, Guys, get your heart right. Hear me, he's not interested in your money. We're not interested in your money, God's interested in your heart. This then leaves on to verse 24 of the same chapter. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Ouch. Some of you may have that word mammon. It's a Semitic word for money or possessions. I'm sure you've heard you cannot serve God, both God and mammon, or you cannot serve God and money. Jesus is asking, Who is your master? Is it God or is it money? You cannot serve two masters. Where is your heart? Where do you invest your time? Where do you invest your treasures? Number two. The principle of first fruits. So, how do you serve God, then, with your money? What do you do? The answer is that, like the Macedonian church, we must commit our whole selves, everything to God, including our money. And if you're a pragmatist like I am, then you'll want to know how practically can I do this. So, what what can I do? How do I? So, does that mean that I sell my house, give up all my possessions to the poor? And follow Jesus, as Jesus said to the rich young ruler. If that's what God is calling to you to, yes. But I think that, you know, if everybody did that, we'd all be in a bit of a pickle in one sense. And so it's, it's really talking about what practically can I do? When I come to God and say, God, I recognize, firstly, it's all yours. Secondly, that you've given everything that I have. Everything that I have is yours anyway, and it comes from you, and so now I need to give my life wholeheartedly to you, okay, so I'm there. Now what do I do? How do I deal with the whole money thing? Proverbs chapter three, verses nine to 10 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. If you look at the sweep of scriptures, both New and Old Testaments, you will observe what I call the principle of first fruits. In recognition of God, who God is, and what He has given to us, we give back to God the first and the best of what we have. It is the recognition that everything belongs to God, all that I have has been given to me by God, and so as a form of honor, sacrifice, and worship, I give the first fruits back to God. Genesis 4.4, 4, right at the beginning of the Bible, says, And Abel also bought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. You know where I'm going with this, right? It's the T word. Anybody know what the T word is? Tithing. Okay, we'll get there. Genesis 4.4 four. 4 Abel honored God with his first fruits. He took the first, you'll see it there. Can you read it? He bought the firstborn of his flock. He was a shepherd. He bought the firstborn of his flock and he gave it to God. And he honored God with the first fruits. That was 2,500 years before the law. Okay. So we got all hooked, especially Christians. I don't know what it is about Christians. They get all wound up about tithing. The principle of tithing, or first fruits, was, did not happen at the law. It happened right at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 4 there, you can see. <clears throat> then there's this guy, Abraham. He lived about five or 600 years before Moses gave the law, and we read an interesting story about Abraham in, in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek... King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first talking about Melchizedek by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Who did Abraham give his tenth to? Anybody? You can, I like interaction. Gave it to God. There was this guy called Melchizedek, a high priest. I believe, I think scholars believe, because I'm not really a scholar, but I believe that this is a representation of Jesus Christ. This was Jesus himself as Melchizedek, seeing Abraham on the road, and Abraham gave him a tenth. This was before the law, folks. This was the principle, because Abraham realized everything I have is God's, and that priest that represented God, he gave a tenth to. By the way, tithe simply means tenth. That's all it means. It means a tenth, or in modern parlance, 10%. And so before the law, this principle was in place. And like I said, for some reason, us Christians seem to get quite heated about the subject. Also, we saw earlier in Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus raised the bar. He, 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 he himself even mentioned tithing. In Matthew 23, 23, very quickly, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law." that is justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay, what is he saying there very quickly? He's saying, again, it's the heart, it's not the action. The Pharisees used to get mint leaves and shave a tent off and give it to God. God's not asking you to do that, okay? God's saying, where is your heart? Is your heart in the right place? And he said to those Pharisees, you know, do those weightier things, but also don't forget to tithe. That's what he's saying in Matthew 23, verse 23. So I don't, I don't want to dwell on tithing except to say, why is tithing important? Numbers 18, 24, we're going to race through these scriptures. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord... I have given to the Levites for an inheritance, therefore I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. The Levites were the priests that served in the temple of God. Deuteronomy 26 verse 12, when you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, excuse my pronunciation, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. I believe that the tithe firstly is holy to God, and we honor God with it, and practically it's used for two main reasons. Firstly, to pray and have provision for those who give themselves full time to the work of God. In our terms, the tithe pays for the running of the ministry of the church and its staff. God's a practical God. He understands this. I, I, I think Anna mentioned earlier about the kids' work last week, right? You can't do that without having resource. And part of having resources is being able to have the money to do what you need to do. Because Philip may be very holy, but even Philip has to eat. Okay. And he needs to have m- money to go to the supermarket and buy groceries to eat. It may sound funny, but it's very, very practical. And it's very serious. That's what the tide is for. The tide is so that we can sit in here on a Sunday morning. okay, That we've got sound systems and musical instruments and all those other things. I could go on and on. You get the picture, right? We, we need to run the work of the ministry and that takes money and we need to give of that and of ourselves to do that. It's more than money, it is more than money, it's time, it's all those other things but we need to be giving of our tithe to support that. The tithe is also used to support the refugee, that's the sojourner, the orphan and the widow, the poor amongst us in the church first and then in society as general, in general. We support a number of different areas. We support compassion. We support home for good. We support the Joel, is it the Joel? Night shelter. Night shelter. Okay, we, we have an elderberry's um, uh, ministry that we've just started up. And I know that many, many people in this church, support many, many other areas where we're looking after the poor and the needy and those sorts of things. As a church, we should be leading the charge, okay? We don't have time to go through it, but it was the church that actually did lead the charge many, many years ago, and governments eventually caught up and generally took over. I want to read one more scripture on this point and then move on. Very quickly, James one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We need to use the money not only to support the work of the ministry and everything that goes along with that, but also to help the poor and the widow. Okay, because that is pure religion. And like I said, as a church, we should be leading that charge. Third And final point on the practicalities and that God loves and rewards a cheerful giver. I don't think I could say it any clearer than Paul. Let's allow the Bible the last word in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 15. The point is this, he says in verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Our God is an abundant God. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to be generous. Right? God is a generous God in our giving. Earlier in chapter 8, verse 7, Paul encourages the Corinthians to excel in the grace of giving. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in the, this act of grace also. You know, giving is a grace. It's a wonderful wonderful thing. Verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I hope, hear my words here, that we will never compel or coerce people to give in this church. That is not what we want to do. And please don't take what I've said this morning as being something that is coercing you to give. I just want to Put the Bible and the truth before you and for you to stand before God and say, God, what do I do with this truth? We're not after your money. And maybe it's a good thing I'm preaching it because I don't earn money from the church because I get more than well compensated in the work that I do uh, already. It's not about us building up our coffers or whatever. It's about the kingdom of God are we responding to God with our whole heart? Are we wanting to see the kingdom of God extend as we give of ourselves first and of everything else later? Verse eight, sorry, and, 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 and clearly as well. You know, God wants you to be a cheerful giver. Giving under coercion is just not good, you know? How would you like it if I gave you a birthday gift and said, oh, I'm giving you this because Liz said I had to, hmm. Yeah, you're not going to appreciate it, right? That's not the way that God wants us to be living. He wants us to be cheerful givers. He wants us to be so caught up in his love and his grace that we say, God, all I have is yours anyway, and I'm just going to give. I'm going to start with the tithe, and I'm going to go from there, okay? And I haven't got time to talk about sacrificial giving and all that kind of stuff, but it's just... Just start, just start. Where am I? Verse eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. These words are so powerful, we haven't got time to really contemplate them. This is God's word to you. He's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work these are amazing words. Isn't this where we want to be as individuals and corporately as a church? Don't we want to be able to say, yes, that is our experience. We want to experience God's grace in all of its abundance. We want to have sufficient so that we can abound in every good work. verse 9. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Do you believe this? Paul is here talking about seed, okay? He's talking about giving, so he's, he's, he's equating money with seed, And he said that the seed is used for sowing, as for planting, and also for food. Right from Genesis 1, we see that God has supplied the abundance of this world to meet our daily needs. We have food. Yet God says it's more than that. It's also seed for sowing, for giving, to meet the needs of others, and for the advancement of the kingdom. And so that point earlier that, you know, God doesn't want us to have nothing because we're going to have nothing to give and we're going to die of starvation, Okay? He wants us to be able to have food on the table and food to eat, and he wants us to have seed to sow. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he's talking about giving. He's not talking about other stuff. So, what is he saying? He wants you to have money spare so that you can sow, that you can give, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work in wonderful, wonderful ways as you read on. So, Paul is on a roll and he goes on and he says, in verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution to them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Would you guys mind just coming to the front? Our generosity, it says here. Read these words, please. Can I encourage you? A little bit of homework, it's not difficult. Read 2 Corinthians chapter eight and chapter nine when you get home. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Giving is a grace. It's an inexpressible gift. You guys can fire up when you're ready. So in conclusion, what is the condition of your heart today? Do we recognize that everything belongs to God? That God gave everything for you and we start by giving our lives to God. If we just stop there, that would be good enough, I think, this morning. Because you, you've got to start at the beginning and that's the beginning. You've got to start by saying, God, I recognize that everything belongs to you. But so wonderfully, you gave it all to me And now what I need to do is give my life back to you. And then practically, you can't serve two masters. Don't serve money. Don't let money have a control over you. And by the way, it's not only rich people that serve money, by the way, just so that you're clear. So don't allow money to have that grip on you. Be free from it. Just be free. And start somewhere. My recommendation would be start with the principle of first fruits. Just start with the tithe. If you've never tithed before, do it. I'd encourage you to do it. Not because we want your money, but because I want to see God fulfill everything that He has for you uh, in your life. And then just know that God will, loves a cheerful giver. So it says God loves the cheerful giver and that he will reward those. They give cheerfully, and it will result in thanksgiving and praise to God. Can we stand up? I just encourage you, um, where you are, just as we close this morning, to just reflect on those things. I hope you got a a bit of my heart, um, that it's all about your heart. And if you really are struggling with anything, and I know that, as I said, Christians often struggle with tithing and other things, please, please come speak to me. Come speak to Philip, to Anna, or anybody else that you know has placed leadership in the church, and we'd love to talk to you about these things. But let's just close by committing ourselves again to the Lord this morning, and just saying, God, everything that I have, Everything that I am, I give to you. Thank you, Lord.